Last season on The Society Show. But I listened to him constantly using the N-word. That's the N-word. And he's constantly using it, the nuclear word. We all hung out in the coffee shop called Poopies up on the strip. Do you love to complain? What if I told you complaining is actually a sin? Uh, one of the Russian uh, journalists said, you know, there's one difference between Hitler when he was coming in uh, and Putin. Hitler didn't kill ethnic Germans. He didn't, he didn't kill German-speaking people. All of a sudden, we don't have laws. What do we do? What do we do? Uh... Nice argument, Senator. Why don't you back it up with a source? My source is that I made it the fuck up. Yeah, does that remind you of anyone? Because it reminds me of... My freaking ex-wife! People of Earth, how are you? Where the hell is Christian? As far as we know, he had a mental breakdown and fled to Los Angeles. Well, we gotta track him down. We need him to get back here for this much-awaited Society Show Season 6. Okay, we'll try to find him. One week later, in Los Angeles. Hum. Hum. Hello? Hey, it's your producer. You need to get back for season six. I don't know. I've, I found a new source of life here. I'm, I'm living in this meditation commune now. Everything has changed. I'm a new person. We all know that's a load of crap. You were born for this microphone. Your source of life is, and always was, recording live to tape show for a few dozen people we need a season six of the society show all of your fan is demanding it yeah i mean i do have a few ideas for some segments i guess i knew it you're made for showbiz and because of that you have no reason to be in los angeles anymore Let's get back to the glitz and glamour of Seattle. Yeah, I do miss it up there. Backstage in the Lorena Bobbitt Theater. Hello all, I have a very special announcement. The show must go on, so please welcome back our gracious leader, Christian Patterson. Thank you, everyone. I'm back. We can finally get season six started. But I I don't know how to tell the audience that I had a nervous breakdown and and fled the show to go join, which uh, something that is increasingly seeming to have been a cult. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to offer that explanation. That's not what you are going to say. Well, I have to offer some explanation. Yeah, you're gonna tell the audience you went to rehab. Why would I say that? People will understand rehab more than this nervous breakdown crap. I'm not gonna lie and and say that. I, I don't like that idea. 
actually, you signed a contract saying you would. Let me see that. Alright, fine, let's do this. Broadcasting live to tape from the Lorena Bobbitt Theater. You waited for it. It's finally here. The Society Show Season 6. This is the podcast for a failing empire. Please welcome your host, the man who rode into the night, the prodigal son making his return, Christian Patterson. Hello, hello, and thank you for listening to The Society Show. I'm so glad to be back here in the Lorena Bobbitt Theater. And uh, before we get into it, I have to be honest with you, the audience, about my long absence. Season 6 should have happened already, and for that, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I have to tell the truth. I've, uh actually been in rehab rehab for what so i was in rehab for kratom and um salvia and um robitussin So anyway, moving on, I have some good news and bad news. The good news is, while I was away, I wrote a monologue. And I will be giving my monologue tonight. The bad news is, while I was in the cult commune... Oh, shit. (laughs) I mean, rehab. I didn't have access to television. The only thing I was allowed to watch was the Academy Awards show. And the cult cult leaders, or the nurses, rolled out a cart with a CRT TV. Like, you know, when you watch movies in a high school or whatever. And we watched the Oscars on that, so... All of my Oscar, all of my jokes are about the Oscars, and um, like I said, I've been in a commune. I mean rehab, so I'm assuming everyone is still wants to talk about the Oscars. I'm assuming you're all not tired of hearing about it at all, and uh, just want to hear more and more, and it's still totally relevant. So, here's the monologue. Sadly. I wrote 18 Jada Pinkett Smith jokes, but my producers warned me we don't have slap insurance. (laughs) Yeah, I thought I was at the largest cult commune in LA, Uh, by that I mean the rehab facility, until I saw how many Scientologists were at the Oscars. Sometimes there's a disconnect with me when it comes to actors because, you know, growing up, all of the drama kids were nerds and celebrities were supposed to be cool, but nothing kind of makes it make sense more than um, when you see someone like Will Smith slap like a high school drama student. (laughs) 
I wonder what he was thinking about in that moment. Will Smith was probably, he was thinking, you know, I could just sit here and no one, literally no one, will remember this joke beyond five minutes. Or I could go slap Chris Rock and the first thing anyone will think about my wife for the rest of her life is Chris Rock's joke. (laughs) Yeah, and then he won Best Actor for his movie King Richard. A movie about two of the most talented tennis players of all time, Venus and Serena Williams. Oh, wait a minute, did I say the movie was about them? It was actually about their irrelevant dad who no one cares about. Yeah, not only did their dad steal the spotlight for the movie, but the slaps stole the spotlight of the movie. No one is gonna think about or watch this seemingly mediocre movie without thinking about the slap. So that's just really kind of got double buried. Sorry, Venus and Serena. Anyway, those are all the jokes I wrote. Um... I'm going to get into some news in a minute, but first... But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first... I I do have to apologize to all the society heads out there for my extended absence, because the reality is I was working just as hard on the show while I was gone as... You know, when it's going on, I was doing things to improve the show. And I want this show to succeed. And to be honest, it wasn't really succeeding to my standards in season five. The quality of the show is not mirroring the fan base. Like, I put on a damn good show. And, like, I'm going to keep it real. I don't get that many listeners. So my only option is to make the show better. Like, well, I guess I have other options too, like market it better. But uh, the, the main thing I can really control is just make this the best show possible. And I needed that break to get the show in a good place so that I could then have a stronger base to build off of. It is my goal... To make the society show the best and most popular podcast in the world. Is that realistic? Probably not. And I don't have much control over what becomes the most popular podcast. But I think I do have control over what the best podcast is. So I'm going to try to make this the best podcast. That's still my goal to have the best and most popular podcast. And I guess just to give a little backstory, when I was a young adult... When I was in college, I wanted to be a TV writer. I wanted to write TV comedy. I was like an inch away from starting a plan to move to Hollywood after college. Like, I I went down and visited for a couple weeks, kind of seeing if I could cut it. I quickly realized on those two weeks that I couldn't afford to live there, for one, and it would take a lot more effort, and it, it was a lot more complicated than I thought. Just, oh, 
plop myself down to Hollywood, but, uh, so I changed my mind, um, and I then traveled across the country instead to go to grad school. My alternate, my, like, alternate plan, if I wasn't going to be a TV writer, was to become a poetry professor. And I don't really talk about this on this show, but I am writing, like, a long-ass poetry book. Right now, it's, like, 190 pages complete and it's all one poem or it's supposed to be that read that way um hopefully i finish it i'm in the home stretch but it's still a lot of work anyway but you know my plan was to become a poetry professor i was going to temple university for their creative writing masters of fine arts program um and i traveled to philadelphia to do that and it failed spectacularly I dropped out of the program after a semester for several reasons. You know, financial, one, there were a lot of reasons, but mainly financial. I was completely broke. I was in a really bad place. And I came to terms with the fact that that both of these paths I had envisioned for my future, you know, like when you're in college thinking, what am I going to do with my future? The two ideas I had came up with, with those paths were closed i had nowhere left to turn to really express myself i guess and that's when i made this podcast and so maybe the society show will never reach mainstream appeal maybe it will not catch on maybe this really will just remain a hobby um, for me, you know, broadcasting like dust in the wind, but I am committed to making this the best podcast of all time, and I think someday making the best podcast of all time will pay off for me. So I hope you enjoy what I consider to be the best podcast. That is my message for the Society Show audience. 2022, the year of a society show. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. So anyway, part of the reason I took a hiatus before season six is... I was kind of avoiding my mistakes. I didn't want to answer for my errors, and I made a major error on this show. I made a prediction that was completely off, and, you know, normally I think I'm... I'm not a very good predictor. I'll I'll keep it real with you. I'm better at analyzing things that happen, but like there's so many things that could happen in the future that um I'm not going to BS you and be like, I can't predict, or I can predict things normally. Sometimes I can. For example, I remember when COVID was first breaking out in China, um, I remember thinking like, if this comes to the U.S., because we still didn't know it was going to be a worldwide thing then, if this comes to the U.S., it will be worse than all or most countries because our healthcare system cannot tolerate this it it would be it would be a total shit show and i basically predicted that all right but um anyway um this prediction i made 
was completely off, and now I must face the consequences. Okay, play the clip. And I will eat my hat if uh, Russia does like a full-on land invasion of Ukraine and claims a bunch of their territory. I will literally eat a hat. I will eat a hat live on air. So I want to offer an explanation for my erroneous statement. Um, I really didn't believe Russia would invade Ukraine. I thought it was an error for Russia, Russia's reputation, and I thought it was a general, generally a bad idea for Russia. Like, obviously for Ukraine's it's bad, for the economy, all of that. I just thought it it was too bad for too many people, including Russia. And um, as my listeners know, I am always highly skeptical of the claims of U.S. intelligence. And although U.S. intelligence was telling us Russia would invade, and they were right this time, I still believe very strongly that you will typically be more correct most of the time if you disbelieve U.S. intelligence about foreign countries. But this time, they were right and I was wrong, so now I will literally actually eat a hat live to tape on the podcast. Oh boy, here we go. (coughs) <laughs> oh, that was that was grosser than I thought. Mmm. Mmm. I'm eating a baseball cap, by the way. Ah! <laughs> Oh, I can't believe I'm eating this. <coughs> mm. Oh, that's nasty. Ugh. That is not edible. Holy crap. <coughs> oh, too much in my mouth at once. Oh, God. Okay, I just have one more bite. Ugh. This part's not as bad, it's softer. It's not as big. Oh. Oh god, okay. Well, now that I've eaten a baseball hat, um, I have done my due diligence and fulfilled my obligation to the show. And I'm just going to get into my thoughts on the Russia situation. I've been asked to talk about Russia, and I might talk about Russia. Since I've been gone, I'm going to talk about this more generally, like kind of what I think about the thing in general, like how it initially started, the things I hear have heard people say about it, because, you know, I haven't been here, and... Uh, I don't want to get... I can get more specific about what's specifically happening later. If it's still going on, which I hope it's not. But uh, I do not support Russia invading. Um, I feel like it's a fairly egregious invasion. And I do not buy the justifications that Russia gives. I don't think they are doing this to denazify Ukraine. And for me, that goes without saying, but I have to say it because 
I'm going to say some other things that, uh, like, it's where it's not enough to say Russia is wrong and unjust for this. In the U.S., you, like, need to be foaming at the mouth saying Putin is literally worse than Hitler. Or, like, you'll get smeared as, like, a Putin supporter. Like, you have to, you can't just, like, tacitly or, um, you can't just kind of have a nuanced opinion that is still primarily critical of Russia. You have to be like, Russia's the devil. Russian intelligence, are you mad? And you'll also have to act like Ukraine is the best, most perfect, most liberal country ever. Vladimir Zelensky has been elevated to a character in, you know, what I refer to as the liberal headcanon. You know, he's up in the, the democratic headspace, nay nay with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Fauci. And if you don't have this kind of idealized kids cartoon glorification of Zelensky, then you're also kind of presented as a Putin lover. Like, they did that thing where they kind of make a hyper-real character of a political figure and treat that person, like, literally, like, yeah, mythologized or, like, deified. Like, they almost, like, straight-up Christified Zelensky. Like, they treat him like a divine figure in this, like, liberal mental palace. And... I think of this as, like, the fandomization, like, fandoms of politics, which is itself kind of a fascist tendency. Like, it's the aestheticization of politics, which is a fascist tendency, and it's creating cults of personalities, um, a, a pantheon of personalities, which I also consider like a fascistic impulse as well. And that's not to say these liberal Zelenskyites are more fascistic than Putin supporters. I, I, that's not, I'm not even saying they have fascist beliefs, but rather the way liberals relate to public figures now is part of this kind of fascistic zeitgeist. It's a way of relating to politicians that is characteristic of fascism. But that doesn't mean Zelensky or American liberals are ideologically fascist. But in some ways they are and the way they're relating to politics kind of is. Just to move on from that point, people will literally call you an imperialist if you don't want a hot war between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. So, like, these people know what imperialism is, but they're so disingenuous that they can pretend with a straight face that the U.S. is a defender against imperialism rather than the exemplar, the perfect ideal, the absolute height of imperialism. And as I've already made clear, you know, I do oppose Russia invading. But I don't support the U.S. being involved in the conflict at all. I think we are already too involved, and we definitely shouldn't continue to be more involved. Like, 
a couple weeks ago now that I remember saying like Joe Biden started sending tanks to a Ukraine and I mean I'm sure they've sent a bunch of other stuff um since and before that that we don't even realize like the scope of I know that Zelensky was requesting an absurd amount of military equipment like dozens and dozens of aircraft a day literally now um I also want to touch on like there are rat accusations of rampant neo-nazi activity in ukraine people will bring up the azov battalion which is a neo-nazi battalion it is integrated into the ukrainian national guard i have talked about them on the show before i don't remember when probably a long time ago anyway um liberals will say stuff like only 10 percent of the azov battalion is even nazis And that is just not true. And you know it's not true for a few reasons. For one, that is a claim directly from Azov Battalion spokespeople trying to downplay their own Nazism for legitimacy. And another reason you know that's not true is that their regalia is absolutely covered head to toe with Nazi symbolism. Ask yourself, would you join a battalion that wears Nazi imagery? If you aren't a Nazi, then I imagine the answer would be no. Or, I mean, how could you if you're not a Nazi? Like, that's obscene. And if 90% of the Azov battalion are not Nazis... Why haven't they demanded they remove the Nazi symbols? Like, it doesn't add up. And my last point on the Azov Battalion is I looked at the Azov Battalion Wikipedia page and this only 10% talking point comes directly from the introduction of their Wikipedia page. And it is a talking point used by, like, center-left, neocon, warhawk, TV and internet personalities, you know the type. And you know what that means? The, even if the only 10% are Nazis talking point was true, it doesn't really matter because the people saying it, like, have no evidence except Wikipedia, or they just, or they are just echoing people who got it from wikipedia they they don't have insight into what they're arguing they're just regurgitating the most easy to find things on the internet that support their position and um having said all that the uh pro-russia side does also misrepresent the nazism of ukraine The pro-Russia side acts like Ukraine and the Ukrainian government is overrun with Nazis. And this is not true, although Ukraine does have like kind of more of an issue with Nazism or far-right activism than a lot of countries. Like, it's not any more than the U.S., I'll tell you that. (laughs) Or, I, I, you know, I don't know about Ukraine that well, but I, I imagine it's on par with a lot of, like, far-right European countries. I guess, like, Poland comes to mind. Like, it's not unique, is what I'm trying to say. And 
the pro-Ukraine side will counter this representation. So the pro-Russia side says Ukrainian government overrun with Nazis. The pro-Ukraine side will counter by saying the Nazis got like 2% of the vote in the last election. The president Zelensky is liberal and Jewish. And both of these positions are misrepresentations. The reality is more nuanced and the most annoying thing to me is the more nuanced reality of the situation provides arguments to both sides of the argument. Like, if you're being more nuanced, it doesn't undermine one position or the other. It just gives you more rhetorical tools to work with. And, and so my real issue is by how sim- is how simplistically this is being presented. Because the reality is, Nazis do not have electoral power. The pro-Ukraine liberals are right about that. But the reason this is a weak argument is Nazis and fascistic forces in society rarely take power electorally. And when they do make electoral gains, um, these are used hand-in-hand with other um, strategies that often overshadow the electoral gains to begin with. Um, Like... You know, Hitler did get elected, but he didn't get elected. He he got, like, second most votes and then was appointed chancellor and all this. So he, he was involved in electoral politics. Um, but that's not really how he came to power. He came to power by... Um, utilizing what was probably a Nazi false flag um, to make him the dictator of of Germany and turn it into a one-party state, basically. Um, so my point is, like, it's not common for fascistic groups or Nazi groups to just win an election fair and square and be like, oh, there we go. <laughs> we rule now. Oops. Um, there, There's a lot more to it than that. And th- there's a lot more like exertions of power that are more important than the actual electoral element. And Ukraine does have fascist elements integrated into the military. And this is the part of Ukrainian society the military that's getting the most support from the u.s and other european countries this is what i have major issue with is like is there a extreme nazi problem in ukraine no but it just so happens that the parts of ukrainian society most infested i'll use that word by nazis i'll use infested against nazis i wouldn't normally use that type of dehumanizing language for other people but like that is where american money is going Okay, so let me just wrap up on on Russia stuff. The pro-Russia side of the debate is, frankly, wrapped up in kind of Iraq war, weapons of mass destruction, tear fear-mongering. The arguments about Nazism in Ukraine are overstated, and they do not justify Russia invading Ukraine. But on the other hand, the liberal left does downplay the Nazism in far-right activism in Ukraine, at least a little bit, and I imagine this is largely because they are so, like, election-pilled that they 
think all politics are our elections, as they also think here in the U.S., but we know electoral politics is kind of a marginal factor in politics for a lot of countries. And where Nazis have power in Ukraine is the military. And this is especially scary, not because they're likely to win elections, but because Ukraine is an extremely volatile country that's ripe with the potential power vacuums that the far right often fill up. And the reason this should be alarming to Americans is, like I said, this is where our money is going. Our tax dollars are going to the Ukrainian military. So for all we know, we're sowing the seeds for like a future Mujahideen or ISIS in Ukraine. And that is my thoughts on the Russia-Ukraine situation. That's right, you just heard the whataboutism alert alarm. Now it's time to talk about the evil doings of the United States. The evil doings of the United States. The destruction of Yemen continues for its seventh year now. The Saudi government is obliterating Yemen, starving, bombing civilians, basically turning Yemen into a blighted, dying, starving country. And, of course, Saudi Arabia is being completely bankrolled by the U.S. So the U.S. is bankrolling, supporting, supplying weapons for something that, by many definitions, could be classified as a genocide. I struggle a bit calling something a genocide because it's such a politically loaded word. And people use it nowadays to smear the opponents of U.S. imperialism. Like, whenever the U.S. wants to invade, that's the word they throw out. Um, And so they have completely stripped the weight of the word genocide off of it. And for that reason, I do not use the word genocide lightly at all. But in this case... By many metrics, the siege of Yemen is a genocide. And the plight of the Yemeni people did not stop when Russia invaded Ukraine. Not like you were hearing about Yemen much before that. So, um, in fact, the Yemen situation is implicated up in Ukraine. So, I'm going to go over some news about the blockade and siege of Yemen to get you caught up um, while the show was on hiatus. So, the first article I want to talk about is how the Ukrainian situation applies. This is from a couple months back now, at the very end of February, from foreignpolicy.com, the headline, Ukraine Crisis Spills into Yemen Diplomacy. Quote, The United States on Monday backed an initiative by the United Arab Emirates and the UN Security Council to characterize Yemen's Houthi rebels as a terrorist group. Despite warnings from four European and Latin American council members that the move could complement 
complicate efforts to reach a political settlement of the seven-year war in Yemen and accelerate a humanitarian crisis in the Middle East poorest country. The resolution, which condemns Houthi missile and drone attacks against the UAE and Saudi Arabia, has been a key priority for the two Gulf powers, which have been the target of increasing military attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthi insurgency. But the council vote comes just three days after the UAE broke with Washington on its most important foreign policy objective, isolating Russia over its military invasion of Ukraine. I'll just finish off another paragraph and then talk about this. In a critical vote in the UN Security Council on Friday, the UAE abstained on a US-sponsored draft resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine and demanding Moscow withdraw its troops from its neighbor's territory. The abstention by the UAE, along with China and India, weakened the US efforts to confront Russia with an un with a unified diplomatic front. So there's a couple things going on here. Those freaking loser opportunists at the UAE they at the UAE in the UAE they abstained from the vote against Russia in hopes that Russia would have their back on this, which I find kind of short-sighted and weird, but fair enough, I guess. Um, but just the fact that they're trying to characterize uh, the Houthis as a terrorist group, it that has really messed up implications. It allows... Um, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to be even more barbaric and just violate more rights of the people of Yemen. And it basically guarantees that they will um, continue to do everything in their power to regime change them. And it's just pretty despicable, honestly, that um, they would characterize them as a terrorist group because they've been attacking UAE and Saudi Arabia because the other Gulf countries, like, straight up, no joke, started it. Like, there's, there's nothing else to it. They started it, and they messed up. They're reaping what they're sowing. They underestimated the the power of the Houthis, and the, now they want to use this cheap, these cheap tricks like labeling them terrorists internationally. It's not gonna work, and it's it's messed up. It's desperate. Hang on a sec. That's part of your trick, right? No, that's not my trick, Michael. It's my illusion. I have a, another article from Al Jazeera. Um, headline, this is from March. Overshadowed by Ukraine war, Yemen on brink as pledges fall short. And then just a little bit from the body of the text. Quote, the UN was seeking $4.3 billion, but it could raise only $1.3 billion, with some major donors missing, including the UAE and Saudi Arabia. The United Nations and aid groups have warned of grave consequences for Yemen after an international pledging conference failed to raise enough money to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe in the war-torn country. So 
this is like stuff that is necessary for them to just remain as a functional society where kids aren't starving to death and they raise like a quarter of what they were supposed to um largely because major donors like the ones conducting what could be called a genocide the uae and saudi arabia completely withheld they're like why are we gonna help save these poor children uh that we're trying to bomb and drone them to death why would we save them here's another article from al jazeera all, all I gotta do is read the headline and subheadline. Dozens of children killed, maimed in Yemen in two months. So in a two months period, dozens of children killed directly by the opposing forces, Saudi Arabia, UAE, US, um, Jordan, etc. Were killed directly. That's not even excluding the hundreds of thousands of Yemeni children who are literally starving to death. And the subheadline says more than 10,200 children have been killed or injured since the Saudi led coalition intervened in 2015, the UN agency said. In seven years, over 10,000 kids, and that's still a fraction of the children who have died because of this conflict. We hold the world ransom for 100 billion dollars. I have one last article on this I want to touch on. It is from the Washington Post. The Amazon Washington Post. This one's more recent. It's um, still from a couple weeks ago, though. Headline, Saudi offered rebel-rejected ceasefire starts in Yemen war. And then let me quote from this. I'm, I'm going to read a, a little bit more than the last two because this article is it's something, especially the way they portray it. The Saudi proposed pause in fighting ahead of the Holy Muslim Fasting Month of Ramadan began at 6 a.m. following an announcement late Tuesday. In the past, several similar truce efforts have failed, and there was no immediate independent confirmation on whether the hostilities had in fact paused between Saudi-led forces and the Houthi rebels. The Houthis are skipping an ongoing summit over the war called by the Saudi-based Gulf Corporation Council because it's taking place in Saudi Arabia, their adversary's territory. It's also worth noting that the Gulf Cooperation Council are basically every other country that is like on the Arabian Peninsula. And they're all monarchies except for Yemen. So Yemen's the only, at least in theory, democracy in the whole Arabian Peninsula. And they're all kind of ganging up against Yemen. So take that for what you will. Houthi official Mohammed al-Bukhadi rejected the ceasefire offer citing the Saudi-led coalition's continued closure at the airport in Sana'a, Yemen's capital, and its restrictions on the country's ports. 
If the blockade is not lifted, the declaration of the Coalition of Aggression to stop its military operations will be meaningless because the suffering of Yemenis as a result of the blockade is more severe than the war itself, end quote, Al-Bukhadi wrote on Twitter early Wednesday. And this is absolutely the case. That's why I keep emphasizing that the amount of children dead directly from, like, Saudi weaponry, which is really American weaponry by proxy, the amount of children dead for that is a fraction of the amount of children dead from starvation. And this is exactly what he's drawing attention to. He's saying, this ceasefire is horseshit because... The Saudis attack us and we attack them. That's not going to stop until they lift the blockade. The blockade is the actual issue. And um, that's all I have about the Yemeni genocide, if you choose to call it that for now. I have one last segment for you before we get to that. This episode is brought to you by L'Oreal. L'Oreal, because I'm worth it, because you're worth it. Two-in-one mascara, conditions, lengthens. L'Oreal, lash pumping technology. 12 times impact, breathtaking volume, bold metallic color, luminous finish, crease resistant, L'Oreal. Cause you're worth it. Thank you for sponsoring the show, L'Oreal. This is KTSS Channel 9 News, the local news station. That's right, so we're trying out a new segment. This is KTSS Channel 9 News in Seattle. This is where I get to talk about local news. Go Seahawks! <laughs> and even though this is local to the state of Washington, um, it really has a lot of implications both for the conflict in Ukraine and the American far right in general. This article is from the Seattle Times. It's from shortly after the Russia invasion of Ukraine started, so it's a while back. But there's no way I can not talk about this. Um, before I get into it, it is about a former Washington state representative from eastern Washington, I believe Spokane or the Spokane area. He is most known because he basically wrote a manifesto calling for, I mean, it was very, it wasn't quite ethno-nationalist, but it was close, and I believe he is an ethno-nationalist, but its focus was really on this kind of like fanatical, far-right Christian nationalism basically advocating for killing non-Christians in this manifesto as a Washington state representative. So this headline from uh, the Seattle Times, former Washington rep Matt Shea accused of domestic terrorism working to secure adoptions for Ukrainian children in Poland. 
And then reading from the article, quote, Former Washington State Rep Matt Shea, the far-right Republican who was found by a House Commission investigation to have planned and participated in domestic terrorism, is in a small town in Poland with more than 60 Ukrainian children trying to facilitate their adoption in America. Now, just off the face of this, what the hell does this dude have any business doing um, with a bunch of Ukrainian kids trying to ship them to America? There are adoption agencies and established processes that should not be worked around. And we'll get into this more, but like trying to set up adoptions during the chaos of warfare um, is very dubious. And I mean, just from this first paragraph, it's dubious as hell, but it's just scratching the surface. So, quote, Shay has said his group helped rescue 62 children and their two adult caregivers from an orphanage in Mariupol, the city in southeastern Ukraine that has been bombarded by Russian forces. But international agencies say, with the chaos and confusion of war, now is not an appropriate time for international adoptions from Ukraine, and Shay's presence and the lack of information surrounding the American group he's with has raised concerns among some residents of Kazimierz Dolny, the small Polish town where the children are staying at a hotel guest house. I asked him many times, what are you doing with these children? And he told me that's not my business. Veronica Zirnica, an aide to mayor of Kazimierz Dolny, said of Shay, quote, I got the feeling in my gut that something's wrong with this guy. He didn't want to tell me his last name. Now, if this isn't obvious enough, like, this just straight up sounds like child trafficking. That's exactly, like, what else could this freaking be? He, he has to be trafficking these kids to pedophiles in the United States. Let me just read a little more. Uh, quote, speaking on Polish television show, Ids Pod Prod, Shay said he was working with a Texas group called Loving Families and Homes for Orphans. He also called the groups Loving Homes and Families for Orphans. It is a hosting organization that hosts Ukrainian orphans in America with Ukrainian families with the intent that ultimately that ends in adoption, Shay said on the show. It's been doing this hosting program for several years. Now, let's let's read what the investigators at the Seattle Times say about that. Loving Families and Homes for Orphans appears to have a w- website, but it is non-functional. The group, based in Fort Worth, registered with the Texas Secretary of State in 2018. No such group is registered as an adoption agency with the Texas Department of Health and Human Services. The group is also not registered with the Intercountry Adoption Accreditation and Maintenance Entity, the group that oversees American agencies evolved in international adoption. 
So this group, it does not seem legit. I used to be legit. In fact, I was too legit. I was too legit to quit. But now, I'm not legit. I'm unlegit. And for that reason, I must quit. I don't even know if this is the group he's sending money to, but it does seem like some shell organization or some just weird spin-off shit. But there is a little bit more to this article. Quote, a nonprofit called Loving Families and Homes for Orphans was registered in Florida just one month ago. It lists its purpose as, quote, to provide loving and caring homes and families for the orphans from other countries for a short time period. The group was registered by Irina in Sipco of Palm Coast, Florida. Sipco did not return requests for comment. Um, this is a quote from the mayor of Casimir's Dolny, where Matt Shea is operating out of. He said, quote, I do not know what Matt Shea and his friends are doing here around children. Mr. Shea and his friends have given us some contradictory information, and for that reason, it is difficult for us to trust them. So... I guess this says a lot of things, right? There's no way this is not trafficking. It's pretty freaking blatant. But then it does bring up, like, why is it always conservatives who are just, like, the biggest sex freak, uh, sex freaks trafficking children? Like, this is m more than Matt Gates type stuff. This is like Matt Gates on steroids on the way to becoming Epstein type crap. This is absolutely foreign Epstein style like thing. Like there, there's no other way around it. These people are trafficking kids. They definitely have elite connections within conservative circles. Um, it, it's just insane. It's frankly insane. And I'm kind of shocked this did not get more press because even though it is a Washington state politician, it, he is a very Republican-ass conservative, and this is a very fucked up... It's fucked up. And so I wanted to bring attention to it. Now watch me whip. Now watch me nay -nay. Okay. Now watch me whip. Whip. Watch me nay -nay. With that, I think that is a good place to wrap up the premiere of Season 6 of The Society Show, Episode 88. Thank you for listening to The Society Show, for one. And I just want to give a quick congratulations to the Amazon workers at Staten Island. I believe that's where it was, who unionized uh, a couple weeks ago now. Wanted to give a shout out to them and Christian Smalls, who helped organize it, um, made a lot of effort too. He He's a whistleblower who got fired from an Amazon factory uh, for calling out their lack of safety regarding COVID at the very beginning of COVID, and basically spent his time after that trying to unionize, and he was successful. And so shout out to him and anyone else who was involved, because... It takes a lot of effort, but really, especially shout out to him. And with that, thank you for listening to this society show. 
My name is Christian. You can follow the show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can follow me personally at Christian is cool. Is is spelled I-Z, so that's Christian I-Z cool. You can find more information about the show at societyshow.net. And with that, thank you for listening to The Society Show.